Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today I want to talk to you about inclusion again, and I want to do it within really, really narrow parameters of one particular Dear Colleague letter. So we're going to talk about inclusion, but first I want to explain to you what a Dear Colleague letter is. A Dear Colleague letter is something that the United States Department of Education has written. And it's something that is going to explain a particular law or a particular phrase or a practice or basically what the Department of Ed thinks about a certain issue in special education. And what happens is that somebody has written the Department of Ed and said, hey, schools in my state are doing XYZ and I thought they should be doing ABC. Can you make sense of that? Or there's this new law out, or this is the first time I've looked at an old law within the context of these particular facts in this particular case, or in this particular set of cases. And it doesn't make sense to me now that I look at it from this perspective. And so can you help me make sense of it? And see the whole um, kind of crux of these Dear Colleague letters is that the law is not really ever black and white. You know, attorneys will joke and say, if the law was black and white and there was always a right or wrong answer, attorneys wouldn't have jobs. And that's true, but the way that I explain this concept in my office is, I say that most decisions that are made by a court or some um, decision maker are made under the shadow of the law because the law isn't really black and white. In fact, the law is based in most circumstances on what is reasonable. And what happens is there's language that can be interpreted in a few different ways. And oftentimes there are certain elements that have to be met in order for a, a court to say yes or no on something. And those elements can be given different weight or they can have different um, degrees of severity when they apply to, to real life. So an example that is not in the special education world is really easy to understand. In a divorce case, um, a lot of states, Kentucky and Ohio, will make decisions that regard the children based on the best interests of the children. And there will be a set, there will be a law that says, here's how we're going to evaluate the best interests of the children. And the law might include, um, you know, what the children want, what the parents want, the mental health of everybody that is um, included in the decision, the um, proximity of the um, parents' house to if it's a if it's a housing decision like where the child's going to primarily live, the proximity of the parents' house to the child's community, what's accessible in the child's community. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we might have a set of, who, who knows, five to 15 factors, depending on what your state is. And those factors might be weighed more significantly. So a question in a lot of states is, when we're talking about divorces, is, well, when can my child just decide who, who is going to parent them more, where they're going to live, right? Where, when can my kid make the decision? And, you know, a, a thing that I have to talk about a lot in divorce cases in Kentucky is, well, what happens is the court might give more weight to the child's decision once the child reaches a certain age or a certain level of maturity or once a certain event happens for the child, then the child's um, opinion about where they live or who parents them more might become more applicable. So that particular element might get more weight. And that kind of helps to explain what the shadow of the law is, because is a court going to listen to a three-year-old that says, I want to live with my mommy? No. Is the court going to listen to a 15-year-old that says, you know, I think I'd prefer to live with my mom because, and then there's this articulated list of reasons. Well, that sounds a little bit more like something that a court would listen to. And again, I don't know what the law is in your state on divorces. That is simply an example where I like to explain what the shadow of the law is. So back to these dear colleague letters. The court or the, the United States Department of <laughs> the United States Department of Education will issue these dear colleague letters to help tease out certain issues in special education. They are not binding. That means that if the Department of Ed has issued a dear colleague letter, a court does not have to follow it. A court does not have to to um, enforce a statement that is in a Dear Colleague letter. However, they are particularly helpful in many parts of advocacy, including in the court, in any kind of court proceeding. But what I wanna to talk to you about specifically today is one that was issued on March 7th of 2011, and it is called Letter to Auten, A-U-T-I-N. And I'll put a link to the letter on my website so that you can pull it up. Letter to Auten addresses least restrictive environment, placement decisions, inclusion. And what happened in Letter to Auten was um, Auten is a lady named Diana Auten, and she was the, and may still be, the executive co-director of the Statewide Parent Advocacy Network in Newark, New Jersey. And she must have written the Department of Ed about, and there's a quote from her letter, um, she must have written the United States Department of Ed about new segregated schools for students with autism in every New Jersey county and new segregated charter schools for students with autism in New Jersey. And so she had this question about these segregated schools and segregated charter schools. And she wrote the Department of Ed and said, how does, can you reconcile this with the law, with the, the um, provisions in IDEA and with the provisions in the Code of Federal Regulations, so the actual statute and the 
um, regulations, can you reconcile it with the fact that now there are these segregated schools? How do we meet least restrictive environment if there are segregated schools? And there are a couple of really great quotes from Letter to Auden. I want to talk to you about two concepts that are in Letter to Auden. The first one is that educational placement is not based on disability category. I'm gonna say it again. Educational placement is not based on disability category. We know that there are different categories of disability. And in your particular state, they might be called something different. In Kentucky, if a child has an intellectual disability, they probably have a disability category of MMD, or FMD, mild mental disability or functional mental disability. A functional mental disability occurs in Kentucky when a child's um, scores on their um, adaptive skills, their academic skills, cognitive skills are more significant, are um, more standard deviations away from the mean than a child with an MMD, a mild mental disability. Okay, and your state is going to be um, probably something different, a different title, but that's kind of the concept as an example. And so what we know is that a child can't be placed in a certain classroom, in a certain educational setting. We cannot send a child to a self-contained classroom, for example, or a segregated school just because the child has an FMD disability category or an MMD disability category or um, an OHI disability category or something like that. And the quote from Letter to Otten is, as the regulations make clear, placement decisions must be made on an individual basis. Placements that are based solely on the category of the child's disability are not consistent with the regulations. Hugely, hugely, hugely important. And that comes from Letter to Otten. And so if you face a situation where a school says, well, your child qualifies for an IEP because your child has, fill in the blank, autism or a, a functional mental disability or something like that. And so therefore you have to go to this kind of classroom. You can pull out letter to Otten and say, wait a minute, since 2011, the Department of Education has said that placement decisions are not to be determined to be determined solely on the basis of the child's disability. That is not consistent with the regulations. So that is a super huge um, piece to the placement discussion. The other thing that Letter to Otten says is that the decision about placement has to be based on the individual needs of the student. So we can't say, well, this child has this particular set of factors, and so we're going to place the child in this particular room. Autism, check. Social emotional, check. Um, adaptive skill deficits, check. Okay, therefore you go in this particular self-contained setting or the segregated setting. We cannot do that. And Letter to Otten explains it well. Here's the quote. 
A child's placement must be, de must be determined on an individual case-by-case -case basis, depending on each child's unique needs and circumstances, made at least annually, based on the child's individualized IEP, and as close as possible to the child's home. And then it goes on to say, recognizing that there is no one-size-fits-all approach, blah, 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 blah. Hugely important clauses in that quote. We determine placement as an IEP team on an individual case-by-case -case basis. And so if a district says in an IEP meeting, hey, we send all of our kids with autism to this particular unit, or we send all of our kids that have this disability category to a particular self-contained room or to a particular teacher or to a particular school. You can go to Letter to Otten and say, no, the Department of Ed says that a child's placement has to be determined on an individual case-by-case -case basis. It also says that we have to make these decisions depending on the child's unique needs and circumstances. And so there's an advocacy tip in there. When we're talking about educational placement, we need to talk about the, the child, the specific child, and his or her unique needs and circumstances. So think about what is unique to a particular child if you are arguing for inclusion for a less restrictive environment, and think about what the inclusive environment provides that the more restrictive environment does not provide. Does the child do really well with better language models? Does the child do really well with different behavioral models? Does the child need interaction with their typical peers, with their peers that have less significant needs? And give very, very um, independent and um, child-specific reasons for that. You know, I've probably said it on a podcast episode before, but we had our big inclusion discussion with our district, and maybe it's the first of many, but the, the only one to date when my child was going into kindergarten. And something that I so wished I had done was I wished that I had spent the second half of his preschool day in a private preschool where he could have gotten an inclusive environment and he could have made progress. Because my little boy, Jack, went to preschool in our public school district, and that was a whole other decision-making process. But he ended up going um, to preschool in our public school district, and he didn't do, I mean, he did fine, but he didn't do particularly well. And so the district didn't see how well he could have done if he was in an inclusive environment. We now know in retrospect, he's in fourth grade, that he does great in an inclusive environment. But we were really kind of advocating in this vacuum of information. It was really my gut that said, oh, no, he does great in inclusive environments. And I had to talk about how he interacted at his sports. You know, he's a he's a four year old with Down syndrome. Um, and I had to talk about how he did in his um, community soccer league. Well, what four year old do you know that is always super attentive <laughs> in their community soccer league? But if he had gone to a private preschool that was 
um, inclusive in the afternoons after he finished with his public school, we could have had real data and we could have had video models and we could have had a teacher that could have talked about it, etc. cetera. Um, and there were lots of reasons that we chose not to do that. I'm happy with what we chose because he was with a really loving nanny um, who had wonderful kids that are still dear friends to Jack, but we didn't have um, that experience. But the fact of the matter is we made the decision as a team and we based it on his unique needs and his unique circumstances. And I was able to pull enough data out of his experiences from age zero to four to help to facilitate that argument and ultimately to get him in a far less restrictive environment than what our district was considering. Of course, this quote says that the decision has to be made annually because every IEP has to be addressed annually and part of the IEP document and therefore something that you have to talk about annually is educational placement. And then I love this part of the quote. It says that the decision has to be based on the child's individualized IEP. Well, I think this is funny because the I in IEP is individualized. But in the quote, it says it is based on the child's individualized IEP in order to kind of put more emphasis on the fact that an IEP is to be individualized. So yes, it's redundant, but it is so importantly redundant that if I'm if I'm quoting letter to Otten in an IEP meeting, I'm always going to bring up the fact that the DOE did something that maybe was not good from a grammatical or a, or a semantics um, perspective. If you if you follow Strunk and White, but it's really an important piece of the language there. And then we also have the quote here in letter to Otten that the child's placement has to be as close as possible to the child's home. And so we can use that when we're talking about the home school decision that an IEP team has to meet. And or in other words, the child has to be educated in the school that the child would be edu would be educated in if the child did not have a disability to the maximum extent practicable. And then I love this last little piece of that particular quote from Letter to Otten. There's no one size fits all approach. So going back to the individual case by case basis, far too often I see that schools will say, well, all of our kids with autism go over here or all of our kids with this disability category go over here. No, 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 no. There is no one size fits all approach. The Department of Education has been saying this for years. In fact, let me pull out letter to Otten, which was written over 10 years ago now. And let me read you this quote. And that's how I would approach that if I were at an IEP meeting. So letter to Otten is a really, really particularly good um, uh, dear colleague letter that the United States Department of Education wrote back in 2011 that I still use at least a few times a year in my inclusion discussions. In my inclusion workshop, I go through several other dear colleague letters. There's a whole piece of the um, inclusion workshop that includes lots of different um, dear colleague letters that I use in inclusion arguments. There's letter to Margulis that was from 2003. There's letter to Trigg from 2007. Um, there is letter to Basso. There are several other 
um, dear colleague letters that can be extremely helpful in an inclusion argument. So if you face an inclusion argument in your district, if you think one's coming along the bend at some point, um, go check out the inclusion workshop that I've got for sale over on my website. It is a three-part video series. It comes with a workbook that goes through the law, the regulations, a case in order to kind of put it into an example, and then the really practical decisions that are, are uh, yeah, the decisions that I guide an IEP team through if I'm making a an inclusion argument in an IEP team meeting. So that's Letter to Otten. I hope it's helpful. I will see you next week, same time, same place. Thanks for joining me.